0: Coming to you from Washington, D.C., I'm Lisa Sharon Harper, President of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. Welcome to the Freedom Road Podcast. Each month, We bring together national faith leaders, advocates, and activists to have the kinds of conversations we normally have on the front lines. It's just that this time we've got microphones in our faces and you are listening in. This month, we are partnering with Activist Theology to bring a raw, real, gut level, honest conversation about an issue that is wrenching apart denominations across the country in the same way that the abolitionist movement tore asunder every single denomination in the years leading up to the Civil War. So I'm joined today by Robin Henderson Espinosa, co-founder of Activist Theology, who uses the pronouns they, them, theirs. And Shane Claiborne, co-founder of The Simple Way and co-director of Red Letter Christians, pronouns he, him, his. And my pronouns are she, her, hers. Robin, Shane, and I have come together to wade into the troubled waters of LGBTQ inclusion and exclusion in the church. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Tweet to me at Lisa S. Harper or to Freedom Road at Freedom Road US. And keep sharing the podcast with your friends and networks and letting us know what you think, because we love the feedback <laughs> and we really do love to have the conversations. And I've been hearing so many wonderful things from so many people. I didn't even know were listening from all over the world. And it's encouraging to hear that you're listening. And it's also actually informative. It helps us to see kind of what are the things we want to be talking about in the future. So let us know. Okay. Keep it coming. We decided to lean into this conversation because we see the church being wrenched by this conversation. We agree that this is important because caught in the middle of this wrenching moment are people. People are being pushed out or they are leaving churches and denominations because of the shrinking ability of church denominations to engage in honest, earnest, gracious discernment with one another, with science, and with scripture around the issue of LGBTQIA inclusion and exclusion. Let's dive in. So how has your life, both Shane and Robin, and also I'm thinking for myself as well, intersected with issues concerning the LGBTQ community?
1: Who wants to go first? (laughs) How about you go first, Robin? (laughs) Well, um, I think that from an early age, I knew that I was different, not just racially, because my mom asked me if anyone ever treated me differently for my skin color. Mm -hmm. She is a dark caramel brown and from Mexico. And so I knew from an early age that I was different. Wow. And I knew that I didn't understand what it meant to be... Girl or boy, and neither of those really fit for me and Of course, the more I grew, the more I interrogated those categories for myself and came out as queer in college, but was deeply closeted because I was at a school that would have expelled me had I come out publicly and wow, didn't come out. yeah, do you mind me asking what school? yeah, Hardin Simmons University in Abilene, Texas, oh wow, wow. wow. I studied theology there. I was an undergrad theology student. Uh-huh. I did some post grad work there before I went to wow. seminary and came out in seminary and you know, was gender queer in seminary and gender nonconforming and I felt very close to the term transgender, but at that time I didn't feel like I needed to be male or female. And mm-hmm. At that time, the only option was to transition to male, and I knew that I wasn't trying to be a man, nor mm-hmm. did I feel like I was female or woman. And so, wow. Um, when I entered my doctoral program, I discovered the language of non-binary. And that was about ten years ago, mm-hmm. and now you know people use that term a lot, but they're still really a lot of work to be done around non-binary visibility mm. but really it's i mean my engagement with the lgbtq community has been very personal mm. um, and the church has not always been a safe place for me yeah. to to be who i think i understand myself to be mm.
0: ooh wow robin thank you i honestly like when i hear your yeah. story i honestly I, i'm kind of you and I have talked about this in the past, but I am reminded of the story of my nephew and how his story helps me to understand the depth of your story a little better than I would have. Yeah. And mm. I feel it because of that. I feel it. So I just want to be with you.
1: Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I'm
0: like sitting here with you in it right now. Mm. That's mm. how I
1: feel. I have always felt that way with you, Lisa, that you've always really leaned in to understand My story and other people's stories. And Mm -hmm. that's, that's such a beautiful gift that you have. Well, thank you. I'll tell you,
0: I was not always that way. And so, I mean, when I think about how this intersects with my story, it was when I was, when I first started Well, let's let's go back to the nineteen (laughs) nineties. To go back to the nineteen Well, I mean, honestly, I have to say that the issue of LGBTQ anything never really came up for me at all at any time until aids in the 1980s and aids in fact ironically i was a theater person i was a theater major at rutgers university at mason gross school of the arts i was an actor you know in their in their theater program and it wasn't my very first introduction to anything gay anything was or even thinking that that was even out there a possibility of anything was the very first theater assembly when all the theater majors of any stripe all come together once a week to have some kind of a conversation or presentation. And this one was done, I believe by Hal Prince, a really big theater person out there came in and, or somebody like that. He came in and talked to us about AIDS and the impact it was having on the theater community. And this was in 1987. Right, so 1987, and it was just devastating the theater community, and and that was honestly the very first time the word quote homosexual this is the word they used at the time um, was ever used in my presence that I remember, and so it was all associated with AIDS, and the AIDS quilt came through our um, I mean I really want to cry about it now thinking about it, but came through our campus and our campus crusade for Christ student leaders went out, not as Campus Crusade for Christ, we were all crusaders, like Campus Crusader people. We all went out to see the quilt and we walked the quilt and wept. Now, the funny thing is on a national level at that point, it was, it, you know, people in the LGBTQ community were all being villainized. And it's interesting, you know, AIDS at that point was was as scary as the coronavirus feels like right now today. You can't go outside. You might get it, that kind of thing. But it was also all being targeted on the LGBTQ community. But I don't think it wasn't on a local level. We were just, we just wept. We just wept walking those, the lines of those quilts. But then, you know, years passed, decades passed, actually, maybe a decade passed. And then I was on staff with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship in LA. And my next interaction with the whole issue was, The question of LGBTQ people in our fellowship and the teaching that had been taught was that it is bad, it is wrong. It didn't really even need to be taught. It just, that's just, that was the, the common belief. And so I am ashamed to say now that I was a part of, I participated in individual prayer times with people to pray the gay away, you know, and that now, now knowing what I know in terms of the fact that there is an actual gene, there's a gene people, there's a gene. <laughs> you can't pray your genes away. You just can't do that, nor should you have to. But yes, that was that's that's where I was. And I was there all the way until I left staff like a decade later. And I left staff and went to New York City and one of my good friends from Campus Crusade had had gone through her own like aha moments. And she really challenged me. And what she said was, you can't be, you can't minister, you can't do ministry in New York City and not deal with this issue. You're going to have to figure out what you think, what you believe, because LGBTQ people, this is ground zero for the movement. And so it was in New York City while uh, in grad school, my second time I went to grad school, this time for Human Rights at Columbia, where... I began to ask deeper questions and ask my friends who were LGBTQ about their lives. And they asked me, you know, about religious liberty and things like that. And I, it was a challenging time, but also a really good, rich time, because it felt like safe space to wrestle. But it wasn't until I was asked to write the book, Left, Right in Christ, co-write it with a Tea Partier, and one of the chapters was going to be on same-sex marriage that I really had to make a decision. What do you think? And
1: what year was that?
0: So that was 2000 and I want to say 2011 that I was asked to write the book. No, 2010 that I was asked to write the book and that we were writing it. And it came out in 2011, one year before the 2012 election cycle. And so it was before the same-sex marriage ruling on You know, on the Supreme Court. But it was after, in the midst of writing it, that the case that ended up going to the Supreme Court was adjudicated in California. So it was in the midst of writing that chapter that I really did my research. And I mean, I just asked all kinds of questions. Like, what is traditional marriage? What do we mean by that? What is it actually, what is marriage and family in the actual Bible? Like if that's going to be the place where, we, where we're where we going to.
1: Yeah, especially when there's so many examples of marriage in the Hebrew scriptures. Hello, right. And and they're different, actually, yeah. through time. Yeah.
0: So what are we going back to? Are we going back to... Solomon? <laughs> I mean, right. Really? Are we going back to David? Are we going back to Adam? Or not even Adam? Adam? Are we going back to Ish and Ishasha? Are we going what are we going back to? Are we going back to what are we going back to? Right. So what's the tradition? What are we going back to? And so that was a big piece. And then another huge piece was really literally just sitting down and talking with LGBTQ members of that community and asking what has your experience been in the church and going into the scripture and seeing that we have not made space for people of LGBTQ orientation, if you will, or that community to live, let alone to be in church, but literally we haven't given them a way to live and be okay alive as they are. That was the thing that literally just kind of pushed me over the edge when I realized the suicide rate and all of those things, and a lot of it having to do with the church. So that was my process, and I can share more about, you know, where I landed later. Hmm. Hmm.
2: Well, I am so grateful just to uh, be listening. You know, I, I love and admire both of you so much, and I think we've had conversations just privately and personally and and to have this in a, in a way that i think other folks can benefit from hearing each other is is a gift for me and i find myself honestly um really doing a lot of listening these days cuz i think uh, a lot of folks in my own as lisa says my own social location uh do a lot of speaking without listening and and you know i i did a lot of talking about this issue when i was in high school <laughs> <laughs> and had no idea what I was talking right? about along with, the, right? you know, the death penalty <laughs> and all kinds of other stuff that I feel really differently about. And, uh, you know, as as some of these politicians get stuff that's played from 30 years ago, I'm like, man, I'm not sure I'd be proud of the things I said, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. But I um can remember in particular one time in college where. One of my floor mates that we were we were living in the dorm together, he became a really good friend, and we were talking one night, and he said to me, you know, he's gay, and he started to share more, and he said he grew up in the church, and he had gone to retreats to have, you know, pray away the gay, to have demons cast out of everything else, and then he just starts weeping, and he said, at the end of the day, I'm gay, and I feel like The church has taught me that God made a mistake when God made me. And I um, remember hearing that and with the tears rolling down his face, like realizing that this was not something he wanted or chose, but something that was a part of who he was, that also the church had done so much damage to him And, and I, you know, I, I, I didn't really have much to say. I just remember holding each other and praying and going like, if if this, if my friend can't find a home in the church, then what have we become? You know, um, and, and after that, that was one of those sort of, uh, crossroads for me where all of my theological ideas or whatever i had like they they just sort of started to unravel a little bit and then i i had a whole lot of other friends that were on their own journey to figure out uh, who god's made them to be and i you know had friends that had made a decision to be celibate um as uh, gay folks like tim otto who um became a really good friend and has written about his own journey. And he actually doesn't uh, extend that call of chastity to other folks, but that's what he felt called to do. And then, so at one point we just said, let's have a better conversation about this. And we um, had a panel with different voices of uh, just people sharing stories like we're doing today. And there were stories that honestly I couldn't reconcile with each other, you know, like Tim, as a gay man, choosing a life of celibacy and then another friend who found himself uh, attracted to both genders and ended up marrying a woman and then another friend of mine who married a man and now are, you know they're raising kids together and he he's male and so they're they're living as a same sex couple and each one of these folks I know them and I know how much they love Jesus and they've chosen different ways of living out their lives, you know, uh, in light of their sexuality. And, uh, you know, it's really helped me in my own journey. I, uh, I personally spent a lot of my life considering a life of celibacy and chastity and took a temporary vows of of, uh, celibacy and singleness and was considering that for my life. And I, I, um, you know got me. I was in the middle of those vows when I met Katie and in fact we we um wrote letters for months just uh, handwritten letters as we were considering dating and after that period I did but one of the things I learned from being mentored by folks that have committed their life to celibacy especially like Catholics I was mentored by a a, a Catholic monk is that Sometimes we focus so much on sex that we lose the conversation around love, and and I I think our our deep longing in all of us is to love and be loved. And I know a lot of folks that have never had sex, but they experience love really in a profound and deep way. And I know other folks that you know have had a whole lot of sex, but they still are, you know, haven't really experienced love and are still kind of um, in a pretty lonely place. So I think that the church needs a a better conversation about love and sexuality. And I, for me, I start with a deep lament about the damage that's been done, you know, and, you know, I, I often quote the Barna study. It's a little, outdated now, but, you know, some years ago, they went to every state in the U.S. and they asked young non-Christians what they think of when they hear the word Christian. And the number one answer was anti-gay, anti-homosexual. And I think every one of us should be heartbroken by that response. I mean, I think it undoubtedly breaks the heart of Jesus when we've become known more for for excluding people and being against uh, homosexuality and you know all that stuff that's wrapped up in that and then you know as I start reading more the suicide rate of LGBTQIA folks especially if they've been raised in a Christian home like I mean we've done so much damage so I kind of start with a uh, in a place of grief and and lament because I, I think we certainly haven't gotten it right and. Um, You know, uh, as you all say, I think we've got a lot more work to do to really think about what um, uh, marriage is and looks like. But, you know, sometimes we jump too quickly to that without realizing that. Let's start by making sure that the place that the church is a place where people can love and be loved and be honest about who they are and who they love. And um, if, if we start there, I think some of the other stuff gets a little bit easier.
0: You know, I think you're totally right, Shane, in one respect. And then I also have a question on another part, but, but the, the, the piece that I really resonate with is that in the research that I did for that book, Left, Right in Christ, that one of the, what it really boiled down to was, do we believe that people who are LGBTQ are human? That is the, that's the question. Because if we believe that they are human, fully human, then that means that they are also 100% made in the image of God and therefore called by God to exercise dominion over their own bodies, their own minds, their own lives, and over their community or within their community and throughout the earth. So if they are human, then then who am i to limit their liberty who am i who am i <laughs> and you know as jesus said to the people who brought the woman before the men and said stone her stone her you know and he looked and said who of you who of you is basically all clean now i realize that that even that itself might even be a triggering reference for some and so forgive me if it is i don't mean to say what I don't mean to say is that it is sin. I actually very much, I mean, I'm going to be real. I don't know. And because I don't know, I'm not willing to legislate or put policy around it. But I don't know because I'm exercising humility, the humility to know that I don't know. But what I do know, here's what I know. I know That what I have seen and what I've witnessed with my own eyes is the capacity for people who are LGBTQ and practicing LGBTQ, um, practicing who they are in life, in daily life. I have seen health there. I have seen healthy relationships there. I have seen people literally come, I mean, literally resurrect from being Unhealthy when in the closet, unhealthy when when not actually living fully into who they are, to being healthy and experiencing healthy relationship. Um, after that, so so that for me actually has been that probably is the the number one thing that has kind of moved me, and that really has been in the context of an ongoing relationship with my nephew.
1: And I'm wondering, Lisa. That personal relationship that you have with your nephew, does that give you evidence for knowing that that he is good and that he is... 100% human and called by the divine? Oh,
0: my God. Yes, absolutely. So the answer, the answer to the question is a yes, is a yes. <laughs> a hashtag yes. Are they 100% human? Yes. Yes, they are. So the question, the only question that remains for me is the theological, how do you square this with scripture? But even that, I have to say, even that has really laid down for me. Even that is like 99% solved. And it's solved for me in that it is the scripture is actually not conclusive. I don't think that the scripture is conclusive when you are honest with the scripture, with the context, with what it's saying. um, I think that people like David Gushy and um, Brownson and, and others have done really good work with the scripture ethicists and theologians who I trust. And even they have said the scripture, let's just put it this way. It's not about that. Like it's not, it's just not about that. So to try to make it about that, Is actually to distort the scripture, which is what the writer of Revelation says in the last page. If anybody distorts this text, you know, God help your soul. Um, I don't want to distort the text. I want the text to actually speak for itself. And when it speaks, it's not talking about this. It's not talking about what we're talking about today. And that's what I became convinced of when I did my research.
2: When when I hear you, Lisa, thanks for that. I, I I think of that scripture where. Jesus talks to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And it's very important that Jesus's harshest words mm-hmm. um, are to the religious elite who were self righteous. And as he said, you know, we're heaping heavy burdens on people, would, you know, go across the world to make a, a, a convert and then they would make them a hound of hell. You know, I mean, he's got some like really like uh, hard words. And he says to, to the religious elite, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom ahead of you. Yes, I think it's one of the most profound things that he he says. And uh, um, as I as I what I hear Jesus saying is that if you've got all of this morality and theology in your head, and at the end of the day, your heart is not right, and at the end of the day, you are hurting people. Like your theology is getting in the way of love. Like God is love, and and we know what love is what it feels like what the the characteristics of it are yeah. I mean, you know and so i think that's like um a really important you know test for the church is is because i think there's a lot of folks that have ideas in their head that the the way that they work themselves out is exactly like it did with the pharisees and there's other folks like I certainly don't think that you know the tax collectors and the prostitutes. I mean, they're also being healed and redeemed from the system and the world that they're in. But like they are able to come in with the, the 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 posture of humility and grace and mercy and love for one another. So I think that's that's really what's at stake in all of this. And you're when you talk about scripture, you know, there's like six Bible verses that speak in any way of same-sex relationships and. I think that those uh, had a very different context yes. than the contemporary world, right? So, like the the, the same sex relations in the scripture had all they were shaped by power, privilege, abuse, and there was not a construct of egalitarian same gendered relationships. The kind of com- conversations that we're having today, where you could have an equi- equitable relationship, so. You know that that's what makes it complicated, and and uh, you know for those of us that call ourselves red letter Christians, one of the things that's complicated is we don't have explicit teaching about this from Jesus. So there's a lot of room that we're we're trying to understand our world in light of Jesus and in light of those six scriptures that we have, but we have two thousand scriptures uh, that talk about love and justice and equity and god's heart for compassion so those need to like shape the larger conversation around sexuality
0: these are our stories you're listening to the freedom road podcast where we bring you stories from the front lines of the struggle for justice of times that seed books, blogs, magazine articles, and op-eds that move the world forward. Are words floating in your head looking for a place to land? Do you need a safe space to write and share your work with other writers and receive feedback that helps to hone it, sharpen it, make it even better? Freedom Road is launching an international writing group online. Writers from across the globe will come together on Zoom, making space and writing in each other's presence, but in our living rooms, like good citizens do when we are social distancing. Then we're going to share what God poured into the world through us. Your one-year membership can lock in your spot in this international writing community, or you can pay month to month. Follow the link in the show notes on our website at freedomroad.us to register today.
1: Well, I wonder, you know, if I could ask a question, please, yeah. um, to to some of this, because I think we're we're hedging in on this so much of what has impacted the church is the politics of inclusion Uh and you, and basically you fall on one side or the other. Right. Yeah. And I've always thought, and I, and I'll say this twice because it's jumbly that the logic of inclusion demands the logic of exclusion. I'll say it again. The logic of inclusion demands the logic of exclusion. So what do we really mean by inclusion? Mm. I've always wondered that because because churches are including or they will say that they're affirming or they're inclusive of a certain kind of LGBT person.
0: Mm. Mm. And when you say kind, are you basically saying celibate?
1: It it could be that. It could be that. It, It could be a celibate person. It could be. Someone who, who mirrors the heteronormative picture, mm, mm-hmm. which is a, a lot of my problem with marriage equality, that we're expecting LGBTQ people to mirror the dominant form of relationship when we know that mm. there's a lot of harm in the dominant form of relationship. Interesting. We go in deep. We go in deep. Yeah. We're getting into it now.
2: That's for real. Dr. Robin's got a doctor up in there. I know that's right. Um, No, I, I, so Dr. Robin, I I think this is, um, this is a a fascinating like angle on this because I, I, when I'm, when I'm in different contexts, one of the, the things that I've seen is that I am not sure that we're all going to. I'm actually pretty sure we're not all going to agree on the sacrament of marriage. Like when I'm in Catholic context, even when I'm overseas, I travel to six or eight countries a year, and even the LGBTIAQ, you know, like this is these are English constructs. That when you get outside of that, it's these are even more complicated cultural conversations. And so I, I think that what I hear each of us saying that's so important is that every Christian needs to be able to say without apology or exception that every person is made in the image of God, LGBTQ person is made in the image of God and insists that their lives have, you know, infinite value. Like if we can't say that, we've got a major, major problem. I mean, that's the low hanging fruit. But then what happens then as we start talking about what these words that to me feel very vague like are you affirming and i have friends that have very different definitions of affirming some would say if you know if you don't affirm polyamorous relationships if you don't affirm i just had a pastor say if we can't affirm every consensual sexual relationship then we're not affirming i said well what do you mean like if you know i I have a consensual relationship with someone else's wife. Would that be an A It's like yes, that's that's consensual and so I think we have really a broad definition of that of uh, affirmation and that now what we have is folks that if if their definition of affirmation doesn't line up with ours, we exclude people, like for instance, there are progressive conferences that won't have speakers that don't have a statement on same-sex marriage. So like, for instance, that's the litmus test. You w- couldn't have the Pope speak. You couldn't have Sister Helen Prejean or Brian Stevenson speak if they don't have a statement on that particular thing. And so I think that that it, what you're saying is so valuable, I think, that the answer isn't more exclusion. The answer is a deeper and better conversation that doesn't trivialize this. I mean, people have very strong feelings, but we've got to have a ground zero, kind of a common ground of, of, of love and generosity to folks that are LGBTQ and realize the damage that we've done. But I think when, it, when there becomes a line in the sand, the left and the right end up almost mirroring each other, you know? And so you have the, the Methodist church that I grew up in that I think had an epic fail and excluded all affirming congregations. And, and then you have these other circles that, uh, you know, have a different litmus test and they're going to exclude anyone that doesn't see eye to eye on the LGBTQ conversation of, of affirmation.
1: Yeah. I mean, the thing that I worry about, I'll just say this quick and I want to hear what you have to say, Lisa, is that whoever's doing the including has power to include and power to exclude. And so we need to make sure that we're also doing a power analysis when we are talking about including Mm -hmm. or excluding.
0: Shane, I love what you said about us needing to approach us as in those who represent and, and are not represent, but are a part of the quote dominant culture as in cisgendered, not, I mean, binary, uh, or at least living on a binary male, female, and, um, straight, <laughs> you know, that, that, those folks, when, when you look at it from, from our perspective, from that perspective, then yes, grace has to flow from us and um, and love and inclusion, right? But I actually think that to level that playing field, grace has to flow from the other direction as well and love from, the, because that what that does is it places the choice to love in both directions, in all directions. It places the, the power to love, to offer grace in all directions. And it, it if not in a solid lived reality, at least in the construct and in the thing we're working toward, it levels the playing field, the power playing field. But I also want to say this, that the question, or I should say, and I want to say this, the question of inclusion for me is central because the question, I guess, is the inclusion into what and inclusion of what? right so inclusion into what into into the capitalist franchise <laughs> in inclusion into white dominant patriarchy inclusion into inclusion into the church inclusion into well, you know, you can even just say on the basic level, which I know is like the most basic things that people in the LGBTQI community have been fighting for, is just simply inclusion into life, the ability to live and breathe, and not and not be beat up. Yeah, that's right. You know, and and be able to have a job and not have it taken away from you, and the ability to have children, adopt children, the ability to live. That's what I, I that's what I see people struggling for. And that's when I say inclusion, that's what I mean. Now, when we talk about, uh, now you brought up affirming, the question of affirmation, so welcoming and affirming, right? I I think my experience of counseling my nephew is really what I go back to. And I don't mean to use him. And I think he would actually be, I think he'd be very proud of this conversation and I will share it with him. But When I look at his life as his auntie, Mm -hmm. he comes to me for advice, like a lot, like he'll text me on the daily saying, you know, auntie, what do you think of this? Or auntie, you know, I'm I'm struggling with this. What do you think? And what I found is that he and his friends, who most of whom are are somewhere in the LGBTQIA plus community, he called me He and his wife actually called me maybe a year or two ago and blew me away with a really funny question. (laughs) He literally said, auntie, auntie, we have like a really weird idea. And I know that you might think it's crazy, but I was just talking with my friends the other day and we were thinking, we want to get together and start to read the Bible together. What do you think of that? (laughs) I was like, (laughs) That's called a Bible study. (laughs) That's what that is. That's called a Bible study. And the reason why he said that is because we don't have people to guide us. Mm. We don't have a church. Oh, come on. Yeah. We don't have leadership and ethical leadership. We're just, we're out here searching. We're out here wandering. We don't really know which, we don't have a compass. We need a compass. And so, you know, so when he calls me now and he says, you know, you know, auntie, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? He's looking for a compass. So I think that, that, so inclusion, I'm inclusive of all people and I'm inclusive of all people loving all people. But I do think there are actions that all people can take that are not loving toward the other. So look, folks, I am in process and you are literally listening into a woman in process. And so I'm, look, that's what this is. It is a, it is a real, this is a real conversation. This is not talking points. This is not, this is not prefabbed, canned, you know, one-liners. This is real. So when I think about that, another thing that comes to mind is the reality that, so, I, okay, so I was at a lunch. I was at lunch one time with a, um, a pastor in New York City. Again, um, pastor with Southern Baptist Convention roots. Wasn't in the Southern Baptist, Baptist Convention at the time, but had those roots and um, had a really, really large burgeoning church. And you know, at the time, had only his church was only about a couple of years old, but he was starting to deal with this with the issue of LGBTQIA um, equity and equality in his church because one of his church leaders had that week had come forward to him and say, uh, you know, I'm gay and I want you to marry us, <laughs> and he was like, uh, oh my god, what do we do? And what he said to me over lunch in many ways kind of shaped, I think, how I approach these things now. He said. What do I do as a pastor when my colleague comes to me and says, I am gay and I want to be in a monogamous relationship? Now, I realize this is going away from the polyamorous. I get that. I'll come back to that. Um, but when, I, when, I, when his parishioner says, I want to be in a monogamous relationship, do I tell him no, I will not marry you. I will not be a part of that because that's what my church has said is not, I, I can't do. But in knowing that, knowing that when I do that, I am actually then relegating him to a life of polyamor, like of not even just polyamorous, of what he called serial monogamy, because it's impossible for then for him to commit. To one person for life. Like it is impossible to enter into the covenant that we were created, our our souls were created to yearn for. And then he said this he said, I think that I'm leaning toward, and I say this now, knowing that this isn't really where I'm at, I'm leaning toward understanding our sexuality in light of the reality of the fall and in light of the reality that none of us none of us has a perfect sexuality absolutely none of us and 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 also what is perfect sexuality and also the reality that god provide god did not create us with clothes on <laughs> think about that we were not born with clothes on we were not created nor in genesis 1 or 2 were folks running around with clothes clothes are genesis 3 after the fall and it is after the fall that god covers over our nakedness our what we then interpret as our shame with the fig leaves with with the animal skins actually god actually kills one of god's own creation in order to cover over to help us and so what if what if all of the ways that we exercise our sexuality in ways that are healthy the ways that we find healthy for us. What if those things are like animal skins, like fig leaves? In the meantime, what if that's that's where I am? And I realize I might get some angry letters from that too. I get it, but this is my process.
2: I, I just uh, would jump in to to say that I, I really appreciate our conversation around when, when we're thinking about fidelity and covenant. These are like really core principles of scripture that um yeah. I think are, are unraveling in a lot of our society I mean I think it it's um uh, a lot of our progressive circles can end up being deconstruction to the point where I loved when you're talking about your nephew wanting a bible study you know because I I um see a lot of our uh the folks that I am mentoring or walking alongside uh in in our neighborhood they grow up and a lot of the the our families not even just in in Philly but i mean in the suburbs all over our country like it's hard to find really strong families and covenant that's held and i mean the the irony that many christians mirror or surpass the divorce rate of the like mainstream culture like i think we have a hard time with covenant and fidelity and and, and there's something really beautiful about that and i think when we end up talking outside of the the idea of monogamous lifelong partnerships even if we might disagree on on the sacrament of marriage and things like that i think that those are those are really important core principles in the scripture that i see kind of the unraveling in the fabric of american families i took some of uh, the young people in our neighborhood to a festival that was a lot of the 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 circles of progressive Christianity end up like being almost post evangelical therapy. You know, it's like uh, kind of recovering from what evangelicalism and fundamentalism has done to them. And when our kids came to that, you know, one of the young guys in my neighborhood, he lives in a family with two moms and he's going to these conversations. I'm hoping he'll find some, you know, helpful handholds and constructs, but so much of the conversation ended up just reacting to of fundamentalism that he didn't grow up with that it still wasn't a a constructive place so I think we've got a lot of work to do to like I mean we've got a lot of polyamorous relationships in my neighborhood and I think a lot of our young people have a really hard time with the idea of fidelity and covenant and we can't let go of those in the midst of the other conversations you know
1: well I I think that I feel like as the only trans and queer person on this call right now, I want to speak both from my experience as someone who, I was in a 16-year relationship and I married my partner. I wrote the entire service, the liturgy, and I wrote it based on covenant. And I, I intended to marry one time and have one partner. But what I discovered was that our vocations were misaligned and it's not that we couldn't deal with covenant or it's not that we couldn't be committed for lifelong committed partnership. It was actually, we had reached the end of our season of our relationship and we pivoted out of that relationship and got divorced and we pivoted into a new season And sometimes that happens. And I think that what I worry about is if we privilege covenant and fidelity, we're disenfranchising a lot of people because there are a lot of LGBTQ folks who don't understand those concepts because they've not been churched. And if we're going we're to we even be,
0: allowed to or allowed we're to allowed
1: to have right. it yeah yeah we we the institution has so disenfranchised lgBTq people that we are actually using a foreign language, and so and I know that that language is important to y'all, fidelity is deeply important to me, but I probably have a broader understanding of fidelity than than maybe y'all do, and that doesn't mean that I'm wrong or y'all are right. But it just means that as a queer person, my orientation to love and fidelity, I think, is broader than what's the, what the institutional church has allowed for it to be. And so I, what I worry about is I worry about people being harmed listening to this, listening to our conversation, when they might say, well, I've been taught covenant means X, but I prefer Y and that's not and that and I'm not trying to push polyamory but I I do worry about privileging this this language of covenant and fidelity because it's really evangelical it's very religious and so many of my siblings are disenfranchised from being included in that framework and so I wonder how do we have a healthy conversation and a robust conversation about sex and sexuality from from a place that doesn't harm. I mean when I think about doing public theology I don't think about doing it from an institutional place but I always think about doing it from a communal place. And so how do we actually help community without disenfranchising community? That's
0: really good. Wow. Wow. (laughs) Well, I honestly, I honestly feel like that for me is maybe the growth edge. That's the place. Yeah. That's the place. I don't know. I don't know. But what I will say is that when you talk about, here's, here's the thought that went through my head as you were, as you were talking is, I wonder if it's helpful, if it would be helpful to pull back even further And get even even more of a larger view, a wider view of this conversation, because it zeroed in very much on the on the question of LGBTQIA, and which is, of course, that's the subject of the of the episode, right? So we're going to talk about that, but it also comes in the context of a larger context, which is white patriarchy. Yeah, right, and it's that context has so, so deeply structured the way we even have the conversation and the way the church has approached it, because at the heart of the church, especially the Western church, has been the white patriarchal project. And I I think about my conversation with the folks at Church Clarity, right? And I I was really blown away, actually, by one thing that was said in, in that episode was that, you know, white patriarchy is threatened by the lgbtq movement because it doesn't have control because it's one more place where white men are not able to control society and um a, a white man who decides that they like men is an aberration to malehood, to white malehood, because it's that man is choosing what they would imagine is the role of the woman. And that's that feels like a complete betrayal of white malehood. And I don't mean to, I don't mean to shift, you know, away from I not at all. In fact, I think that I think we have to examine the the framework within which we have this conversation in order to see our way to another way of having the
1: conversation because Yeah, well because. <laughs> I mean, I think you make a great point, Lisa, that if we want to keep the status quo in check, white governance, white patriarchy, white institutions, mm-hmm. um, and even black churches, you know, mimic white patriarchy. Yeah. So how do we actually break out of that imagination, that moral imagination, and actually lean into a more just and equitable imagination where all creation flourishes.
0: Walking Freedom Road from coast to coast and around the globe, this is the Freedom Road Podcast. The role is to make seen what usually goes unseen. The role of faith is to help us connect with what is usually unseen. The world needs writers of faith to step up with extraordinary skill and connection to God's heart now. We need to speak truth and speak it in a way that brings clarity and aids discernment. Freedom Road is launching a seven-week online writing course in faith-rooted writing for justice. This seven-session course will cover Introduction to Writing for Social Justice, How to Tell a Great Story, How to Write a Nonfiction Book Proposal, How to Get the Right Agent and Negotiate a Great Contract, How to Identify Your Audience and Get Your Book in Their Hands, How to Build a Platform and an Audience for Your Writing, And finally, we're going to talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion in faith publishing. Facilitated by Lisa Sharon Harper and Marlena Graves, follow the link in the show notes on our website at freedomroad.us to register today. When I have spoken with indigenous folks, activists, also scholars around the world, one thing that is clear to me in most indigenous communities, and indigeneity does not mean Native American. Indigeneity means indigenous to the land. So you find indigenous people in Africa, you find them in Europe, you find them everywhere, right? Because there are people groups who are indigenous to land everywhere. But this also includes in North America um, and South America, that there is the construct of the two-spirited person. Like there is an understanding and there was a role within the community for for that, people group. There was a a value that was actually, um, they had value, actual value within the community because there was an understanding of the strengths that they bring to the whole community. And there was a way that they were given space to live and flourish and thrive within the community. So I think that, I think honestly, part of the thing that I, I, I guess you're seeing me wrestle with is the fact that We have read the scripture as if it was written at Starbucks by a white person. We have, we are reading this brown colonized text as if it was written in the halls of Rome, but it was not. It wasn't. It was written in caves and on the run with by brown people who were not European and who were not Western, were not, and some of whom were not even male. So they didn't think like that. And yet we have placed that on top of the text. So I know I'm in process. That's part of the reason why I said, what would it do for us to pull back and to understand the context within which we're even having this conversation? Because if we recognize that even our reading of the text is a Western overlay on top of a non-Western text, What does that do to the way we think of even covenant? What does that do to the way we think of humanity and what, even what Genesis 1 is actually about, Genesis 2 is actually about? It's no longer necessarily about Adam and Eve. In fact, it's not about Adam and Eve. Those words are not used in that text. Those names are not there in that text. The words are Ish and Eshasha, right? And the one who actually... In the beginning, this is the thing that blows my mind. If you are true to that text, now you're seeing me clap my hands because I'm so passionate about this. If you are true to Genesis 2, then you must you must accept the reality that the first human was non-binary. The first human was Adam, which simply means of the earth. And it is it is not necessarily a male construct. The first male language you see is when when God takes that rib out of the human and separates male from female, right? Ish and ishashah. It's the first gendered language you have in Genesis 2. But humanity doesn't start there. So it could even be, one could theologically argue, I mean, literally, could argue as a literalist from the text that that the most human humans are
1: non-binary. You, I mean, you you're preaching the good word, right? We have... When, when scripture was interpreted, and I learned this when I took, I, I was a biblical language minor in college. We've read gender into the Bible and we've cre we socially constructed a narrative to fit a particular paradigm. And we need to be careful. Like if we're going to read the Bible literally, we also need to do the historical work of understanding that Adam just means earth creature and there is no assigned to Adam.
2: Yes. When I think of Jesus too, I think of Jesus as the embodiment of that, you know, kind of the everything that it means to be human. So often translated the hu- the human one, you know, that, that the son of God is often translated the human one, right? That, that, um, we see Jesus weep over Jerusalem. We yeah. see Jesus flip tables. We see all of uh, like kind of the 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 best of all of humanity kind of manifest there. Um, and you know, I I even see that as we look at God. You know, uh, I think it was Lauren Winter that said it's interesting how we have these churches that are all named like a, a certain way after the metaphors that are most prominent, uh, like. Church of the Good Shepherd. Uh, but she said, uh, when have you seen a church of the mother hen? Right. Um, but, you know, we have that image, too, right? the the breasted one, El, you know, El Shaddai. Mm. there's all these different language words that uh, mm. even the pronouns for the Holy Spirit, you know, that transcend gender that we. So I, I see that, you know, to be to be human is to have be made in the image of God. And we certainly see a complexity in God. And, you know, even like, as you were saying, the first human, it's, it's pronounced good when they're helping one another so that, you know, the, the communal nature of God is in us to love and be loved uh, is what we see uh, as we're made in the image of God, where two or three of us gather, you know, God is with us, this kind of call to community. So I, I vibe with that. I, I think that that one of the things that as I think of uh, the the larger global conversation, it it really is complicated, right? Because the United Methodist Church, again, like where I grew up, is a very white denomination. And yet the U.S. community of the Methodist Church was in some ways more affirming and inclusive than the global church. And I think there were global folks that were used as kind of ponds and this maneuvering and everything else, but, but it, it, it doesn't get easy as you move outside of like white American culture either. Like when I'm in communities in Latin America and other places, there's still constructs around this that, um, uh, make the conversation complicated. So I, I just want to, you know, I think it's, it's not like, um, if we can just get outside of the U.S., uh, all this becomes crystal clear. I think it's still a really, a really difficult thing when I'm, you know, when I'm in places that I mean, just like the prosperity gospel, I think has, has been exported. Uh, I think there's a lot of colonialism that that has been too, and you know, that that's where I've got some serious anarchist tendencies, which uh, vibe with a lot of what both of you are saying, you Lisa. Like I don't think that the government should be performing marriages any more than it should be baptizing people i mean i think this is a holy work of the church i do think it's the role of the government to protect people from discrimination and bigotry and violence and that's why lgbtq rights i think should be at the heart of every christian no matter how we you know think about marriage and uh but yeah it it really is a I'm, I, you know, as I get outside of the U.S. too, it doesn't feel like it's an easier conversation for people in other countries. I think we're still really wrestling with some of the same things. And, you know, and at the end of the day, we've got to be able to call some things out, though. I mean, when you've got countries where it's a capital crime or even a crime at all to sh- show same-sex affection, I mean, geez, can we not, you know, all... Like, rally around undoing that kind of hatred and discrimination. I mean, for the love of everything, a lot of times the evangelical church has kind of been complicit with these regimes that end up doing some of the, the most uh, hateful policies in the world. I mean, and uh, I think we, we've got to like stand on the side of love.
1: Yeah. I mean, I can agree with
0: that. Yeah. Okay. So, can I ask a question? So, and this is a question for you, Robin. What for you, what is the role of process? and grace in this conversation, because that for me feels like the place where, honestly, you know, we, we just, um, on Freedom Road podcast, we just dropped last month, an episode that was specifically about abortion and the reality that abortion is not, uh, is such a powerful political weapon in our country because it's never talked about. And I think that the same is true for the LGBTQIA conversation. I mean, I experienced a break in my own denomination and ultimately left it because – they didn't talk about it well. When they did talk about it, they talked about it honestly in a in a cisgendered, straight, dominating way, and they chose their they chose the prophets they would listen to and the ones they didn't, and they base and they the ones they listened to were the ones who affirmed where they were, and they didn't really give any credence or even listen to or read the people who who disagree with them, who are incredibly credible theologians and ethicists, and so it was it was kind of it almost honestly it felt like a Jim Crow trial, like it felt like a um like a rigged a rigged process like the kind that we just saw with the impeachment trial like you're looking at it going we know we know where this is going and this is not an actual process so what is the role of process and grace you know in this the grace to have the conversation for you
1: well i mean i think both as a theologian and ethicist i've spent a lot of time thinking about this mm-hmm. And also I have personal experience and I think the role of process and grace is I, I just want my story to be heard. Uh, Ah, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Because voice is agency. Right. And if we can, and I know on the activist theology podcast, we believe story can change the world. Yes. And. Freedom road, that's freedom road too. (laughs) Sorry. Yeah. So I'm not trying to push an agenda, but I am trying to contribute to social healing and we are so broken in this world. And as we see with our American politics, everybody has an opinion and everybody thinks they're right, but no one is telling stories to one another so that we can actually mobilize. Hmm. And so process for me is around storytelling and the grace is just the opportunity to tell my story and to be heard mm. amen how about for you shane oh
2: man i'm I'm just sitting with that i think that i'm i'm first of all really grateful for both of you and and i i in particular robin i i at least and i get a lot of time together and you you and i robin haven't had quite as much but i I look forward to continuing to learn and listen to you and, and read everything you write. And, and, you know, all that we've kind of created red letter Christians for um, Lisa has been a part of it from the beginning on the board is to c- kind, of, kind of create a platform where we are sharing our stories and the passions of fire in our bones and we're listening well to each other. And, um, I certainly think that we're better off, you know, and wiser and um, better with your, your voice among us. And so any way that you can bring yourself to, to our community at Red Letter and, and likewise, any way that I can be a conversation partner with both of you, I sure want to do that. I I, I think we need uh, more conversations like this and, and more relationships with people that can build that trust, you know. I'm. Um, and and a humility to realize that um as one of my mentors said it, it didn't take long for the israelites to get out of egypt but it took a whole long it took a lifetime to get egypt out of them so you know we're 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 kind of like trying to get that system out of us and i i certainly still see that it has its you know kind of uh, um uh hooks in, in me as a white man and I want to I want to be a good listener and friend and and show up when I need to to support my friends and that are that are especially suffering the brunt of exclusion and and bigotry and hatred um and and certainly the LGBTQI community is is uh that you know has has experienced that so um thanks for this time and I look forward to more times like this
1: yeah, this has been great. Thank you.
0: I just want to say, honestly, I just want to, I feel like this conversation is sacred. It is a sacred conversation that I, I hope that others will lean into and, and begin to open their mouths and voice their stories and the doing that we will knit our broken relationships back together because that's really ultimately what it's about is the capacity To love and be loved.
1: Yeah. Mm, That's real.
0: The conversations leaders have on the road to justice. This is the Freedom Road Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The Freedom Road Podcast is recorded in Washington, D.C. This episode was engineered and edited by David Dult of Sandberg Media. Freedom Road Podcast is produced by Freedom Road LLC. We consult, coach, train, and design experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and lead to common action. You can find out more about our work at our website, freedomroad.us. Stay in the know by signing up for updates. We promise we won't flood your inbox. We invite you to listen again next month. New episodes drop around the first day of each month. Join the conversation on Freedom Road.